The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. This year we kicked off uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we will spend most of 2017 working through this great account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, starting off with asking the question, who is Jesus? What do we make of him? Uh, what should we do with him? Uh, what does he desire to do with us? And, and here we see a great passage where he begins his public ministry, um, starting in verse 12, chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that when was, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Well, here we have an account of Jesus' start of his public ministry, and it starts pretty ordinary. I mean, of course, aside from him healing and healing all diseases and doing all these miracles, it's very mundane. It's very ordinary. He's just walking along the Sea of Galilee. We hear just his movement throughout the region as this passage starts. And he just comes along these fishermen out on the sea, fishing and mending their nets. Something, no doubt, that these men have done from every day since their adolescence and, and their adult lives. And this is actually what will become is the beginning of what we know as the church. Jesus calling his first disciples. The church, which means the called out ones. It's the same root word that, what, that, that, that Jesus' command is found in when he says he calls them out. And he says, follow me, the called out ones, the church of Jesus. And it shows us this critical movement of a follower of Jesus. This movement of a follower of Christ, a disciple, a learner, a lifelong student of Jesus. So here in this passage, we're going to see these three movements of a disciple. The discipleship is about who you follow. The discipleship is about what you leave behind. And discipleship is about where you're headed. Jesus shows us these three great movements of a follower of Jesus. The first is that discipleship is about who you follow. What is so ordinary about this start, it quickly turns extraordinary. It quickly turns amazing and, and, and spectacular and supernatural. They leave their business. They leave their family. They leave their lives as they have known it forever, and they follow a stranger. Put yourself in this situation and see it for what it really is. It's bizarre. It's extraordinary. 
Why do they do that? Why would they leave everything and quit their jobs and leave their father alone? Because what Jesus is inviting them to is amazing. I mean, simply put, it's amazing. In traditional Judaism, a disciple, a student, would be the one that goes and finds a rabbi and chooses a rabbi to place themselves under a rabbi to learn from them, and to be a student, to learn the way of, of the religion and pursue the rabbi. A rabbi would bring this disciple through a process of maturity in order to teach this this protege and mentor this protege to live a life and to believe the things that this rabbi has, be, has believed. And so it's the hope of the student to be just like their, their master, their mentor, their rabbi. It's a well-established um, institution in the first century Judaism. These men would have known it well. They would have been raised with this understanding. It was very a, part, a visible part of their culture and their people. A student or a learner, which that's what a disciple is would learn the ways of their master in order to handle the religion the way that their master does. So a disciple would, would move, would be, they would come into a relationship with a rabbi and they would move in sequence and graduating through a process, maturing through a process of one stage to another to eventually becoming a Jedi master, I mean a rabbi <laughs> of... You see, we know what this is like. We consider, consider Luke Skywalker, for instance, we, who wants to be this Jedi knight, and so he comes under... Uh, the tutelage or the, the, uh, the relationship with, with Yoda, the Jedi Master, and, and, and he wants to be a Jedi Master, but first he must go through a sequence of training his mind and, and, and feeling and understanding the Force. Am I getting it right, engineers? Am I doing it good? And then, um, but first he must stand on his head and, and levitate boxes in a swamp, and he's got to go through all these things. Consider Karate Kid, right? Consider Daniel Caruso, right? He comes to he comes to Mr. Miyagi and says, I want to punch him in the face. And he says, but first, you know, wax the car, sand the deck, and paint the fence. Right? You have to go through these processes, and you have to, in order to become what you desire to become, you have to, you have to go through all these things. Consider Clarence Oddbody. Who? Well, of course, the angel, right, that is sent to save uh, George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. Um, first, you, you want to get your wings, Clarence Oddbody. You want to get your wings, but first you must... You, here is your project. You have, to save, you have to save George Bailey. Throwing in a lot of generational things here, trying to catch everybody. I don't really... Uh, I don't know. I didn't know what to do for the millennials. I, one day you're going to catch that Pikachu, and you're just going <laughs> to... Just... <laughs> if you keep trying hard enough... So we see that there's nothing odd by this kind of thing, right? There's nothing odd with about a sensei or a Jedi master or an angel placing themselves under an apprentice and, and starting at the bottom of the ladder, climbing themselves up the ladder to find union with God, with a master, and becoming what they desire to be. And so there's this, this, this system that says, work your way up. Work your way up the ladder towards where you want to be, and someday you'll get there. We understand that. It's, it's in our business. It's in our work. The corporate world is structured in this way. Education is structured in this way. You start in kindergarten and then first grade, and then there's graduation. You know, every grade there's a graduation. And eventually you graduate high school, and then you go to college and you graduate. That It's called graduation for a reason. It's you one next step after the other, and you will eventually be what you desire to be. And here is what is shocking about Jesus' invitation. And this is why they would leave everything and follow a stranger whom they have never met and to leave their very family and their life and their whole 
job to follow this man they've never met. Because Jesus begins in a place where nothing else begins. He begins with the graduation. Where the world says, start at the bottom rung and work yourself up, and maybe someday you will be like me. Jesus places them at the top. He places them in union with himself. It is a radical reversal of discipleship that was a very prominent institution in the first century Judaism that everyone would understand. It was different. It was a radical reversal of everything that these, that these men knew about life and about growing and about maturing in the faith. It is completely upside down. Why would they quit their jobs? Why would they drop their nets? Why would they leave their father in the boat alone? What would make a person take off their apron, so to speak, and say, I quit? Well, obviously, something profoundly better. Something profoundly amazing. And a good objection, a good thinking through this might be a question of, well, but aren't these merits, aren't these disciplines of the faith, aren't these good works important to the Christian life? The Bible surely puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on, on growing in your faith and doing better and getting higher and, and maturing, of course. But we understand this order of the Christian discipleship that we are invited into, that Jesus invites his disciples into. The order of Christian discipleship, that growth in faith is the root of all spiritual growth prior to all the disciplines of work. That Jesus is starting with union with him. Come and follow me. I'm calling you out of your life and you have arrived. You are there. You don't, you're not pursuing me. I'm coming to you and making you my disciple. You're there. You made it. So now let's go and grow together. So Jesus is showing us something about what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple. That growth in faith is the root of all spiritual growth. That happens prior to the disciplines of growth that he calls us to. Jesus accepts these men by grace prior to any discipline of their work. He has never met with them. He has never seen how they would preach or how they would minister. He has never seen them handle the word of God properly or improperly. He has not seen them care for the poor or the weak or the marginalized. He has never seen these things, and yet he says, you're with me. I accept you. Come, follow me, and live the life, and come behind me and see the ways of God. Follow me, Jesus says. Sadly, we make the discipleship process with Jesus not about us following Jesus, but really more so about Jesus following us, Jesus helping us. We put our lives often on the throne. We put our, our wants, our desires, our needs, our hopes and goals for our life on the throne, and we say, Jesus, would you help me be the person that I desire to be? Help me accomplish the things that I want for my life, Lord. I want happiness and, and wealth and and I want to be funny, and I want to have friends. I believe that if I join myself to you, you'll help me be all those things. Because if I trust in God, then he'll help me be happy and wealthy and funny and secure. And we don't realize it, but what we're saying is, Jesus, follow me. Because here's the life that I desire to live. Would you help me get there? And Jesus says, you see this word, follow me, follow is actually two words in the Greek, and it literally means get behind. He is saying, get behind me. And we often say, Jesus, would you get behind me and get my back while I'm living my life? And Jesus says, you get behind me. Follow me, because this is where I'm going. And you come and follow me. 
Get behind me and I will make you into what I desire you to be. This relationship is not, I will help you be what you desire to be. But Jesus says, follow me and I will help you be all that I desire you to be. And you must follow me. Peter, with the first disciple here that he calls, or one of the first that he calls, Simon, who is called Peter, will learn this over the course of the three years that he spends with Jesus. He will learn how painful this is to get behind Jesus and to follow Jesus rather than, than Jesus following him and his idea of how life should go. Later in Matthew chapter 16, we will see, and we'll read this morning here, is a story of that with Peter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day he'll be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ouch. You do not want Jesus saying that to you. Peter takes Jesus aside and, sh- and sh- shakes, holds him by his shoulders and says, what do you think you're doing? This is obviously foolish. I have a better idea. This is how life should go. And Jesus says, you get behind me. This isn't about the way you want your life to go or my life to go. This is about you following me. The same Greek command when Jesus says to his disciples, follow me, is the same Greek command that he gives to Peter when he calls him out and says, get behind me, Satan. The same, the same energy, the same force. Peter's rebuking Jesus and attempts to correct him. And we do this as well when anytime we read God's word and read the scriptures and we question its validity, we, date its, we debate its validity into our lives, to speak into our lives, to tell us how to live, to lead us in the way that God should go. We question it and then we think about our wisdom and we match it up with God's word and we say, well, this doesn't seem to fit in my life at this time. Anytime we expect God to bend, our, bend to our agenda rather than us bending to his, we're closer to the character of Satan than we are to the character of God. Jesus calls him Satan. He is not Satan. He is not the, 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 the flesh and embodiment of Satan or the devil. But he is saying, you're, you're, you're acting, you are no more closer to the ways of Satan than when you are expecting me to follow you than you follow me. And in fact, this is how the shepherds in the ancient Near East would guide their flock. There's a story of a group of, of, of visitors to the ancient Near East, to the Holy Land. And they were going on a tour, and they had a, a guide, a guided tour, that went into some agricultural, some remaining agricultural areas. And they're, they're looking at the flocks, and they're looking at the shepherds guiding their flocks. And they spot a flock of, of sheep that are grazing and being led in pasture by their shepherd. However, the shepherd is, is leading from the back. And it was an odd thing because the shepherd was leading from the back and, and pushing these, these sheep along and grazing and pushing them along the mountainside. And one of the tourists noticed this and pointed it out and said, I thought that it was customary in the ancient Near East and customary in this part of the world for the shepherds to lead at the front of the, of the, of the flock rather than behind. And, and the guide said, well, you're right. It, it absolutely is right for the shepherd to lead from the front. And so the tourist said, well, then what's going on? Why is this shepherd leading from behind? And the guided tour said, Because that's not the shepherd, that's the butcher. (laughs) You see, we won't all leave our fishing business, right? We won't all leave our family or be called to do such a thing. We won't all be martyred for our faith on the mission field. 
which all of these men, with the exception of John, would do. All of them would be killed for following Jesus. But we are all called to follow Jesus, and this requires a tremendous amount of faith. It, it requires a tremendous amount of coming behind Jesus and saying, what do you desire? Where are, your, where are you going so that I can go with you? What do you believe and value and, and what is true and what do you love so that I can love that? What do you hate so that I can hate those things? Faith that listens and trusts in Jesus and brings our every facet of our life under his leadership requires a tremendous amount of faith. And when we don't do that, we are following the ways of the world. We are following the way of the butcher. We're following the way of, of Satan when we say, well, let me consider which way I should go. And if I need your help, I'll ask. And so discipleship is a movement of a person that decides who we will follow, placing ourselves behind Christ and saying, I want to follow you, even when it doesn't match up to what I think is right. Another movement that, the, that uh, our gospel writer Matthew shows us in the life of Christ is that discipleship is about what you leave behind. So we look about following him. We talk about allegiance to him. It's stronger than any earthly commitment, any earthly attachment. What is here is so strong, this, this loyalty and allegiance to Jesus as they are now their new master, the one that they will follow. There's no way to be a disciple of Jesus without making a break from the love of the world. That is what he invites us into and what Matthew starts off with, the words of Christ, where it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the first command that we see from Jesus in his public ministry that Mark records to leave a world behind and to follow him. So a movement of a faithful disciple of Jesus is one that considers, what am I leaving behind? What am I saying no to so that I can say no to Jesus? This is what he invites us into, to break from all other treasures, to break from all other, all other, uh, all other things to follow Jesus. They look at Jesus, they hear his invitation, put yourself in the boat. You're mending your nets, you're fishing, and you see Jesus says, come out, follow me, be with me. They look at Jesus, they look at their nets, they look at their work, they look at their fish, they look at the freedom that they have out on the sea, they look at their father, they look at Jesus again, and their reaction speaks a thousand words, doesn't it? They leave everything and follow him by saying, Jesus, you're, you are greater than every earthly treasure. You're greater than everything here. You're greater than my family. You're greater than my freedom. You're greater than my success in this business. You're greater than everything I hope and, and, and dream and want in life. Uh, you're greater than it all. I'm leaving behind so that I can follow you. Be wrong to think that these disciples had nothing to lose. I think sometimes we think like that. Well, these guys were uneducated. They were fishermen. They, they had nothing to lose. They were the perfect target for Jesus. But in fact, at this time, like it was not, you were not poor if you were a fisherman. Being a fisherman, you had a lot to lose. Yes, they had a limited education, but Zebedee's family had a, had a big, thriving business with employees. They left a good life with a promising future in their family business. Jesus at this time is 30, maybe 31 years old. These disciples are even younger than that. And Jesus is effectively calling them to give their life. 20-somethings. 30-somethings. It's at a time when they are at the peak opportunity of their life. Peak opportunity to start a career. Peak opportunity to start a family. And Jesus is saying, follow me with no end date. 
follow me with no timeline, with no promise of, of promotion, with no promise of, of, of an end date or anything like that. He says, follow me with no time frame to speak of. What, what have you forsaken to follow Jesus? What have you given up? What have you counted the cost of your discipleship in following Christ? What have you left behind to make it obvious to all that might see you that you follow Jesus? If people were to look in your life, would they see that you have, that you have considered your life and you have left behind a world pursuing your own desires and your own dreams and your own uh, comfort and freedom in order to follow Jesus and whatever he might call you into, whether it's prosperity and, and joy or whether it's suffering and sorrow. There may be for some of you an earnest desire to follow Jesus, but you begin to hesitate as you consider that you might have a lot to leave in your life, like the disciples may have done as they look at their boat and they look at their father and they look at the freedom out on the sea and then they look at Jesus. You might want to really follow Christ, but you look at your life and see that you have so much to lose. I want to establish my career first. I really want to get it going into a really smooth way. I want to get settled in in my home and in my relationships or in my marriage. I really want to get my, my security uh, emergency fund where I want it to be before I really give my whole life to God. I want to do some things first before I go all out for Jesus. Don't let it be true to you what has been commonly said about people in their 30s or younger, which is the common phrase that youth is wasted on the young. You've heard this? You have all the vitality, you have all the energy, you have all the strength, you have the opportunity right now. Don't waste it by delaying your obedience to Jesus. Don't waste the, 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 the readiness that you have, don't waste the opportunity, don't, don't waste the emotional strength that you have right now by saying, I'm going to be obedient to Jesus. It's the oldest who say, I wish I would have my years back. I wish I would have had those years back. I wish I could do it again. I wish I would have decided to follow Jesus in those years. I wish I would have decided to, to not worship my work and to idolize my bank account, to not put relationships above Jesus. I wish I could, have, could salvage and, and, and reconcile some of those years back. I wish I would have been all out for Jesus because I realize that's the greatest treasure of all. Jesus will be not impressed by what we have done for him in this life. There's nothing that Jesus is lacking. There's nothing that he needs that we can give him. There's nothing that Jesus wants that we can give him. Look at all the fish that I caught, Jesus, while I was pursuing this and putting you on delay. Look at all that I did. Look at all the fish I caught. Look at all the people I've helped. Look at all the, the good that I have done. In the time that I was not pursuing you, I did a lot of great things. There's nothing we can do for him that he doesn't already have. The Bible says he's, he's the owner of a thousand cattle on a thousand hill. He has everything. He, the, the world and universe was created for him and by him and in him and through him. And there's nothing that he needs or lacks. There's nothing that we can do that he can say, you know what, I really wish you would have followed me, but I'm glad you really did this in your time off. Because I could use that. There's nothing. What have you left behind? Not all of us will be martyred on the mission field. Not all of us will be called to a life of poverty. But we're all called to follow Jesus. We're all called to repent of our former sins. We're all called to repent of a life that is rebellious against God, where it doesn't put Him first, that doesn't make Him our Lord and leader of our life. 
and to follow him. And that will cause us to say no to a lot of things. What is he asking you to say no to? That's the movement he's asking you to follow. The movement of your life right now might be to repent of a life of, of attitudes and behaviors and commitments that are not obedient to God, that are not consistent to his character, that are not obedient to his word. In our final movement, we are reminded of this great destination of Jesus' disciples, that discipleship is about where you and I are headed. In the second half of this passage, we see this powerful and, and sovereign ability of Jesus to change lives in a dramatic way. Right? We see this a lot in Matthew. We'll see it a lot more in the New Testament. And, and, and it's where Jesus is healing people. He's casting out disease. He's healing people of their, their, um, uh, of their crippling and debilitating illnesses. It's obvious that Jesus here has both the power and authority and discernment over death and sickness. He can take away death. He can take away sickness. But I want to focus on something else what would the disciples see? As Jesus says, now follow me, and then here's where Jesus goes in this next movement where he does all these things. What is it that Jesus wanted his disciples to see about what it meant to follow him? Because these followers of Jesus are watching it all. And I think it gives them this, and I think it gives us this great thing, the right expectations for following Jesus. He wants to show them, here's what it's going to look like, the right expectations for what a life of following me will be. Jesus does not extend an invitation to follow him and then bring his disciples into this like Christian subculture and say, see, look it, we can party too. You see, we have, we don't, we have our own songs that are really fun. If you listen, it has a good beat to it if you listen to it. No, we don't do that, but we, we have like, we have uh, like non-alcoholic version of that. So Jesus doesn't say, come and follow me into a life and here is how great it will be. Jesus says, follow me. Here's the world that is broken, that is diseased that is falling apart, that is dying. If you want to know what it's going to be like to be a Christian, here is what you're going to live in. Here is what you're in the midst of. Here is what you're a part of. Jesus shows him and us this two-part reality for the Christian disciple, which, which theologians have called the, the already not yet. The already. It's, it, the already is, it's a blessing to have the gospel now. The kingdom of heaven is here. There is blessing in knowing God, the power of God to forgive us of our sins, to bring new life, to unite us to Jesus, to welcome us into the love of God. There is such a blessing of being in Christ right now and trusting in Him by faith. Even in the midst of a broken world, we are accepted. We have God's welcomed blessing because of Jesus. So there is a tremendous amount of good in the already. You can add things to that list. What is the blessing of the already? Well, the ability to, to not have shame of sin, but to come and, and to ask for forgiveness, knowing that we have it from God in Christ. What is the already? A freedom from the, the, the having to please men and find our identity and our security in what others think of us because we know that God accepts us in spite of our character or record. What is the blessing of the already? Well, knowing even in the midst of trials that we are not alone, that Jesus is with us, and he lives in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. So there is great blessing in the already. But then there's the not yet. For the followers of Jesus, there remains something that's incomplete. Something that's unfinished. We have not been spared from the difficulty of life. We have not been spared from the difficulty of, of death and trials. There's sickness. There's sorrow. There's persecution. There's confusion. In this life right now. If you're in Christ, there is no more love from God that you can have than this moment. And you still might be miserable. 
That's the reality of the already and not yet. The, benefit, the benefits of the kingdom of God and being in Christ for the follower of Jesus don't come all at once. I think that's what Jesus is wanting to show us. And it's in this time period of history where you and I find ourselves. You and I find ourselves in a unique position in this history of time. After Jesus has come, after his life and death resurrection, and before his second coming, where we live in this time frame, which is very brief in the span of all of the world's history. It's a brief time where we are called to have this eternal perspective that is supposed to breathe life and hope in the life we have right now. What disease affects you this morning? What brokenness? It may be physical. It may be emotional. It may, it may be something else. Everything from allergies to croup, that's what we're going through this week, to, to arthritis, to cancer, to anxiety, to mental illness, to family dysfunction, to cultural tension. You find yourself in the midst of something that is broken, the loss of a loved one, the pain of a spiritual doubt or a moral failure that you've recently experienced. You don't know if God's going to love you again or if he can love you again. The burden of responsibility and the toil of work. Who's ready to go to work tomorrow? Who's really, really excited to work hard? Who's really excited to you know, break their knuckles? And The symmetry of God's people, the symmetry of the life of a disciple is this already, not yet. The Bible paints this wonderful picture of the symmetry of God's work and the already, not yet. You see, Jesus went through Galilee, and it says it went through Gal Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every affliction. Here is where this beautiful symmetry finds its meaning. Your life is in the sovereign hands of another. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. Your life is in the sovereign hands of another. This means there will be unexpected failure. There will be unexpected conflict. There will be unexpected brokenness in your life. There will be unexpected pain and sorrow in your life. And it means that you can be prepared to encounter the unexpected because of what you know and what you already have. We live in a broken world and we follow Jesus in that broken world. He does not take us out of that broken world to live in some kind of Christian subculture where nothing bad happens. He calls us out of our sin into a broken world in existence where he says, now follow me in the midst of that. Understanding your broken world and understanding what Jesus is doing in you and in the midst of your world are the, is, is foundational to your growth in faith. If you know who you are in Christ and you know the world in which you live, that it's broken, it'll help you grow in your faith. It'll help you follow Jesus with the right expectations. Jesus says, follow me, and then he decides to leave his disciples into the most brokenness that can be found at that time. Through the fallen world and through the fallen work, where they live and work and love and play, and he presents himself as the hope of complete restoration of all that is broken. Jesus is working to transform you. Following Jesus, leaving behind a life of sin and focusing on Jesus and living and following him in a broken world, Jesus is saying to you and I, I desire to transform you. I desire to restore you. And only I can do that. I think of you, as we conclude, I think of you who might be followers of Jesus and you've been distracted by the not yet. Is that you? 
You, you, you love Jesus, you follow him, but you are just so distracted by the not yet. You're distracted by all the promises of God that have yet to come true. And you say, what gives, God? Where's the promise? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's your dominion? Where's your kingship and lordship over this, this broken world that we live in? And you're distracted by that. And because you're distracted by it, and you have improper expectations of the world we live in, you're robbed of the joy of your salvation. So you say, I know I follow Jesus, but I don't even know why anymore. Because what difference does it make? I'm miserable with him, I'm miserable without him. This may come to a shock to you and hard to imagine, but there is still sin in you. There's still sin in you. And Jesus means to transform you. He means to heal you. He means to make you more and more like him. The only way for him to do that is for you to follow him in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your weakness, not in spite of it. He is not saying, when you guys figure it out, when your nets are all mended, when you get a good catch, when you're ready to follow me, I'm here waiting for you. He says, I know that things are messed up. I know that the nets are broken. I know that the business might be tough. I know that you are shame. You feel so much shame of the life that you have lived. In the midst of that, I call you out. And in the midst of a broken world, I call you into. And he uses brokenness, I believe, that Jesus uses brokenness in our life and in our world to reveal his true ability to heal us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. You've heard that and said. And it's true. Maybe that's you, where you know you're a follower of Jesus, but you are so consumed with the, the not yet that you have forgotten the joy of following Jesus. And then there's someone in here, some of you that might be the other way, where I think of you who, who have up to this point considered yourself to be a follower of Jesus. You consider yourself to be a disciple, but you're actually not. Because you haven't been in those movements. You have not followed Jesus, but rather you've asked him to follow you. You have not left behind a world of doubt and sin. You have not trusted him in the midst of sorrow and placed your faith in him even when things are hard. And I think of you who need to see this call from Christ to follow him. You haven't forsaken a life of sin, but you've, you've, you haven't clung to the grace of Jesus. You haven't responded to his call to be a disciple, to believe what he says and to do what he does. And the Bible is not a book about fairy tales. It's not a book about everything that goes well with us. It is a book of, of reality. This is where my middle child, like Eeyore personality, is going to come out, okay? It's, I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm just, I'm a realist. And I like to, this is how really it is. This is how it really is. The already not yet is reality, and the Bible does not lie to us. The Bible shows us what it's really like. <coughs> it gives us suffering, and it gives us redemption. It gives us sorrow, and it gives us hope. It gives us loss, and it gives us restoration. It gives us this symmetry between how the world is because of sin and because of our guilt and what Jesus will do in response to it, how he will save us from it. We find ourselves in the pain of the not yet, and Jesus is there to remind us that he conquers sin and he conquers death, and he's alive today and he's doing that work still. And he means to point us to a different kind of healing that addresses our greatest need, which is not physical, which is not political, which is not cultural or even behavioral, but it's spiritual, our greatest need. He invites us into relationship with him based on his grace and full of love. To be a Christian means to be a disciple, to be in these movements. There are no Christians who are not disciples. There are no Christians who are not in these movements with him. 
Let us not grow weary of responding to Jesus' call to come out of a life of sin, to come out of the darkness, and to let his light shine upon us and to give us life. Let's pray.